Sarah Constance. And I'm Lucinda. And together in our Kids Law podcast, we're going to take a look at how laws affect children as we grow up. So what are we going to look at in this episode, Alma Constance? Well, we have interviewed two MPs who have told us about their work, and I'm interested in talking to the MP of my constituency where I live and about the role that law plays in politics. The MP of your constituency, Westminster North, Alma Constance, is Karen Buck. She's a member of the Labour Party and has been a politician for over 25 years and was part of the government when Labour Party was in power, working at the Department for Transport. So she's got lots of experience in this area and was involved recently in creating a new law herself. Hello, Karen. Welcome to our Gids Law podcast today. We are so happy to have you here. Can you please tell us about your role as an MP? Uh, Okay, well, as I'm sure you've already heard from others, the role of an MP is primarily to be a legislator. So we are elected to go to Parliament and to debate and pass the law. Obviously, the role is different according to whether you are a part of a governing party or whether you're part of the opposition, um, because only the government really uh, um, will come on to one or two of the exceptions, but the government's elected for that period of time to bring forward the laws and to make major decisions on funding, on taxes and so forth. So the role of an opposition during this time is to hold them to account and to form an alternative government. So for the last 13 years, a long, long time, we have been in opposition for my party. During that time, I do my work in the House of Commons, but also members of parliament have a role in their own constituencies, both helping individuals as what's called casework when people come to you with problems, but also with working with all of the organisations serving the area, the council, the health service, the police, to try and make sure that those services are delivering as well as possible for people who live there. We have heard about how MPs make laws in Parliament. How do MPs decide which topics should become new laws? Well, overwhelmingly again, with one or two exceptions that we might come to, the choice of the laws is determined for a governing party by what they put in their manifesto. So every few years, when you come up to an election, the parties will bring forward a broad outline of their policies and what they want to do and what they want to change. Um, And it's for that party, when they are in government, to bring forward the law. So MPs as a body, the 650 individual MPs, do not choose what laws to make. Those are driven overwhelmingly by the programmes of whichever party happens to be in government. Then during the intervening years, between four years and five years, things will emerge that, that on occasions that are unexpected and sometimes the law has to respond. There are challenges that emerge in society that governments have to respond to. But as I say, broadly speaking, it's defined by a, a party's manifesto. Can you tell us about the new law you were involved with creating? Yes, so I've said is that most laws decided by Parliament come through the process of the government of the day. Whichever political party happens to have the most number of members of Parliament and they're therefore able to take their programme forward. Every year there are a few slots for individual MPs and they're chosen like a lottery where these have got a chance, though not a certainty, of getting their own personal choice of a law forward. So not long ago, I got well enough placed in that lottery to be able to bring forward a law 
to improve housing conditions. Now, you know, you may have seen, and there's been quite a lot of news coverage in the last few months about housing conditions, and particularly about the death of a child, AWAB, as a result of living in damp housing. So I passed a, a law which came into effect around the time, just after the time that AWAB tragically died, to give tenants in bad housing more powers to be able to take their landlords to court if their landlords were failing to deal with things like serious damp or very, very poor housing conditions. So that law came into effect for existing tenants in 2020. It does mean that there is a, a legal right for all of these tenants who live in these terrible conditions to be able to do something about it. As with most laws, you can change the law, but what you then need to have is the ability for anyone to be able to put that law into practice. So you can have those laws written down, but if you don't, what we call enforce it, if you don't have the means of making sure that law is upheld, then it doesn't help you a great deal. So Parliament and I as an individual have to become very aware of the fact that your law always needs to rest on the ability of having the means of those affected to be able to prosecute it, to be able to go to court in a timely fashion, to have what we call a deterrent effect, meaning that the existence of the law itself is enough to discourage bad behaviour and encourage good behaviour. Can you now tell us more about how you decide to be a politician? Well, there are people who kind of know from a very young age, your age, that it's what they fancy. But I don't think most people do that. I think with most people, you slightly stumble into it because of other paths that you've chosen. Now, for me, I started off as a a local councillor, so elected, but onto the council. And I did that because I lived in Queen's Park in North Westminster and cared about the local area, was interested in um, in in making things better, and I believe, and I still believe very firmly, and across political parties, that that a democracy is only it can only function if people are prepared to put themselves forward, and indeed then to be thrown out by being elected. So I got involved at the local level. I spent several years as a councillor, so very much kind of focusing on on local issues, and then the point when an election was coming up, it wasn't a member of parliament in my party already in place. So there was an invitation to put yourself forward. And I thought, yeah, sure. I've always believed that we didn't have enough women in politics. We're getting a lot better, but but still not completely there. At that stage, women were really, really underrepresented in parliament. And so I thought, well, I could have a go at that as well as anybody else could. So it certainly wasn't a kind of deliberate plan. It wasn't a career plan. Um, it was very much kind of getting drawn into it at the local level and then going from there. We have heard in our previous episodes that MPs work together to look at the work of government departments, to examine the details of proposed laws and to hear from experts and members of the public. Can you tell us more about these groups and your involvement? Okay, well, there's two different types of these groups. The first are called select committees, and these are all party committees, and they mirror each government department and a few more. And the intention is to bring MPs together from all parties for them to operate while they are sitting as that, without regard to party lines. So the idea really is that those committees would um, hear from government ministers, particularly if they're taking forward a law, or just a report on the activities of their department, would come along and be questioned. And um, also, when there is a, a law going forward, um, to to bring in experts, to bring in people from outside Parliament, 
and to hear from them and then to produce a report. And the idea is that the recommendations of that report would inform government and help to make decision making better. So quite a lot of MPs take part in these at some stage in their in their working lives. I've spent several years on the Social Security Select Committee uh, and then on the Home Affairs Committee, which is responsible for things like policing and crime and prisons and and the Education Select Committee at different stages. I was on the Joint Committee for Human Rights for a few years, and we did do quite a lot of work with the tech companies. This was well before the online safety bill, but, you know, on holding the the tech companies more strongly to account for regulating their content, and particularly for the safeguards they put in to protect children from harmful content. So, you know, the online bill, safety bill, we, we were very much of the view that it was necessary and took the government a very long time to bring it in, but it wasn't as strong as we wanted it to be. So we were kind of pushing amendments from the Labour Party to toughen this up against, I mean, perfect and legitimate, but I think wrongly placed view that you need to protect freedom of speech. You do need to protect freedom of speech, but this could actually have the unintended but real consequence of meaning that young people and children in particular could be exposed to legal but harmful content which by virtue of scale could be a real problem with the algorithms leading people down into all kinds of harmful content, eating disorders, suicide and so forth. And so we did seek to toughen that that bill up when it was in the Commons and you know would, would want to do so. You also have something called all-party parliamentary groups. Now, these are not part of the formal process of Parliament, and there are hundreds of them. There is one for pretty much every country in the world, and they're designed to be a forum that MPs can build relationships with different countries and develop an expert interest in them. There's one for kind of pretty much every industry, for different parts of the UK, and for lots and lots of special interests. They're generally speaking a good thing because they allow MPs to do a bit of more specialist work around things that particularly interest them. So do they do they work well? I mean, they work well, I think, in that while you are on them, generally, people do work across party and they, they don't just split, you know, Labour Conservative lines or whatever. Um, do governments listen to them? Not as much as they should do. When your party, the Labour Party, was the government... What role did you have and what was it like? So I did different things. I was a government minister in the Department of Transport for some of that time. And I was also, I had a particular relationship in leading some of the work in London during the last years of the Labour government for when Gordon Brown was the Prime Minister. So I can't say that I greatly enjoyed working in the Department of Transport. It was very much not my area of uh, a particular interest. But when you get appointed to a government job, you either take it or you don't, and you don't really get to always specialise in the area that you particularly enjoy. So I was in charge of airports, which was like kind of weird, because that's not really anything that I've ever been terribly interested in. It's a very different experience to being in opposition, because what you can do, you know, your party in the party of government, you can go to a government minister, and that government minister has got the ability to change things to make things better. You can influence and change legislation in a way you can't do as an opposition. And you're able to go and lobby for measures that might improve your local area, for example. So during those years, I was kind of pretty instrumental in setting up the academy schools, Paddington Academy, Westminster Academy, and so forth. And in a big programme, most of which is now gone, but we're now trying to kind of slightly rebuild it, which was a plan for early years help 
called the Sure Start Programme. And we were able to get a lot, a lot of different schemes going and quite a lot of money into, into North Paddington uh, in those years and to help deliver some of the kind of priorities of the of the government locally. And that was really that was really fun. That was good. So you can actually see the difference it makes. I know that you are now the shadow minister for social security for the opposition. What does this mean? So in each department of government, you know, foreign affairs, defence, education, Department of Work and Pensions, which is responsible for Social Security. There are a team of government ministers. They are the politicians who lead that department and make the final decisions. They get sign-off on the policies, on the spending of the money. Obviously, they're assisted by the civil service, the non-party political administration of government who advise and do most of the detailed work, but they make the decisions. The opposition, and that's not just the Labour official opposition, but also the other smaller parties, will have teams who what we call shadow them. So you aren't obviously running a department, but will respond to the debates, will initiate debates, will question and will develop policy for your own side when you move into government, as you always hope to do. So I work with a team on social security, and I particularly work on the design implementation of universal credit, which is the main framework for social security. So it's again about holding ministers to account and challenging and questioning them and doing your own policy development work. Can you tell us more about your work in our constituency and how you help people with their problems? So as a member of parliament, you don't run services. Most local services fall within the local authority. So you know, from rubbish collection to street lighting, quite a lot of the road systems through to the libraries, the leisure centres and whatever are run by the local authority, the health service, the police, all these different organisations. People sometimes think their MP is the person in charge, the person who runs the service, you are. But what, what happens is that at any given time, there will be a lot of people who will have concerns about, opinions about or problems with local services. And that can be Almost anything. It can it can range from what school you're able to get your child into. Child might have special needs. A lot of housing issues. A lot of immigration issues. Particularly the nature of our constituency, which is very much kind of international. A lot of people come here. They come as visitors or to work and stay for a while. We've always had quite a large kind of refugee population um, and uh, migrant population. Uh, you might have issues around planning concerns. People raise issues around crime and antisocial behaviour. Quite frequently, people will come to their member of parliament with help, either because they've come to the end of the line or they can't get a response out of a particular service, or because their MP is kind of who they think of first. So we try and we try and help people. A lot of which is, uh, is involves sending them directions of where to go or how to make an appropriate complaint in the in the right way. But sometimes it involves just kicking the door down really on on their behalf because. It's a complicated world and a lot of people just simply are not very clear about how and where best to go in order to get a, a, a response. You are very much reliant on other organisations then doing their part when you, you take an issue to them. So we do that. It means having what we call a surgery, it's a bit like a doctor's surgery, but you know where people can come. Increasingly these days we do a lot of it online and in emails, completely changed from the old days. You used to get a stack of posts two feet high. Um, and now it's a stack of emails two feet high every morning. So part of the work involves kind of learning from some of that, all of all of the views and the opinions and the complaints that people bring to you so that you can go and work with these organisations, these partner organisations, 
to try and shape the services and improve the services. So obviously, I now work very closely with the council. Uh, next week, I'm going out on a, a walkabout with our new commander of police for this area. So I will take her to look at some of the areas, some of the hot spots we've got for crime and antisocial behaviour to discuss how we can improve the policing response. I'm talking to the health service about one of our local GP surgeries, which we've had a lot of complaints. So, you know, you'll do the individual help, but you'll also try and learn from the individual issues and turn that into something bigger that can that can feed into and help shape the improvement of services. And then you do just lots of little things. So I'm talking to you this morning, but quite frequently I'll be seeing school groups. I do that you know, nearly every week. There's a group of young people from our schools will come into Parliament and they do a tour and you meet them and you get to talk to them and you get to answer their questions. I like doing that a lot. It gives you an opportunity to hear what they have to say and to you know teach them a little, a little bit about kind of the workings of politics. I would like to know whether MPs are interested in how laws affect children as we grow up and how they take the views of children into account. Do you think children's voices are heard when laws are made? Probably not as much as they should be. I mean, it depends very much on the nature of the laws being shaped. I think there's undoubtedly an element which the shaping of laws overall is heavily influenced by the fact that only over 18s vote. And you are both influenced by the fact that the voting public are the people that you have to respond to because they do hold not just your future but in their hands, but also the shape of a future government and its priorities. But also because there's not a single and easy way to listen to children's voices. So children are as diverse as the adult population. Take Westminster. The children you know, in, in some schools, in some parts of the borough, will have a different experience and a different set of views to others, just, you know, just like with the adult population. But whereas with the adult population, everybody can go on the electoral register, everybody can vote and their opinion polls. So, you know, you, you build up these different ways of hearing their views. You don't have the equivalent with children. Having said that, I think MP is kind of all very conscious of the fact that we're not just drawing up policies and laws for today's adult population, you're developing them tomorrow's. Some MPs specialise this in more than others. And there are some laws where the interests of children are so central to what they're doing that inevitably it completely shapes. So we know when you're talking about about anything reform of education or early years, then the interests of children are first and foremost in that. And not exclusively, because you take early years, for example, building up nursery provision. A lot of that is framed around providing childcare for working parents whereas I think it should be at least as much about early childhood development and early learning. And that you know, those two aren't necessarily the same thing. And you have to be kind of very conscious of what is in the interest of the child won't necessarily be in the interest of the adult. I mean, there's a whole area of family law, which is kind of where the children's interests are critical and that you need to look at and be informed by to make sure that you're getting the right response. So I think there's not a single answer to that. But I mean, in terms of Will any in every law be well informed by the interests of children? Not as much as it should do. And I think we have to think more about how we can do that better. Do you think the voting age should be changed from 18 to 16 across the United Kingdom, as it is now 16 in Scotland, but 18 in England, Northern Ireland and Wales? I've always been sympathetic to that argument. My slight worry is that taking part in elections 
um, is not great already for 18-year-olds. And there is evidence that suggests that if you don't start voting quite young, if you don't vote at 18 or as near to 18 as you can be when an election is called, then people can, can carry on not voting. And so I think we need to kind of think very hard about how we make sure that if it, from when that happens, and I'm fairly sure at some stage it will happen, that we we accompany it with means of making voting both more practical and more and easier to do, you know, something that is more attractive for people to participate in. We all know that voting in itself is not the only thing that makes a democracy healthy, but it is absolutely essential. I mean, by not voting, you're just outsourcing decisions about future laws and future governments to, to somebody else. But that involves a, a, a commitment to working with schools, working with children and young people and enriching what people learn and study about civic life and, and about participation and making that interesting and alive to people. One of the kind of side issues of this is that the government has introduced some new rules on taking voter ID um, to a polling station. You can't, won't be able to vote in future without having photo ID. That photo ID is easy and standardised for older people. So, for example, a senior trouble card will be acceptable, but a junior a trouble card for young people won't be. And that just seems to be ridiculous. So if we want young people to take part, we have to make it possible and easy for them to do so. About like teaching law in schools, do you have any view on that? Because children don't know much about law at all. When they get to 18 and they get to vote, they don't really know much so do you have a view on if well i mean the problem with this is that it's very easy just to say let's do that right Um, obviously it's a good thing you want children to approach adulthood with a reasonably good working knowledge of how sort of civic life works of how politics works of how to handle money you know all these things that are kind of important to adulthood and the tension is always between finding the time to do that as well as finding time to pursue everything else in the curriculum because you can't just shoehorn more and more and more in. I mean, I think the aim is already there in legislation, but there is always a bit of a challenge in terms of of time. I suppose one of the things you might really like to do, and this is a, for many schools, is is an issue about resources, is that that some of this could be developed in, in out of school activities and enrichment and in debating and so forth, a lot of which we've lost in schools over recent years because the money isn't there to do it as well as much as you'd like. But in an ideal situation, you would have uh, have time and skills in school enough to yes teach children certainly the basics of how government and politics works and and the purpose of voting and um, allow people enough open enrichment outside school for them to be able to to develop this and some of the kind of practical applications. I have a question I ask all of our guests. What were you like at 10 and what did you imagine you would go on to be as an adult? I couldn't imagine being an adult at 10. It just seemed to be inconceivable. I was a reading obsessive. I mean, that was was my life at 10. I just read books. Not great books, but it kind of didn't matter. Just, Just books. And I like to be outside in the country and I absolutely loved to listen to pop music. We, we had um, this tiny little transistor radio that only picked up about two stations but one of them was they don't have them anymore but these pirate radio stations that were moored on boats off the coast of England and they used to broadcast pop music that you couldn't get on the main stations and that's what I did. I listened to pop music on the radio and read pony books. 
So thank you so much, Karen, for helping us understand the work of an MP and how they make laws. Do you have any final advice for children who want to understand more about how laws are made or be involved in an area that improves the way that laws are made? Well, I think it's always terrific when children, young people um, want information from their MP and, and want to engage and ask questions. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And I, I really like the fact that most of our local schools are so engaged in, in doing that, encouraging councillors and MPs to, to be part of that process and explaining it to people. I mean, the only other thing that I always say every time I go to a school group and people ask me this question, I say, learn to speak in public. I feel very, very strongly about because I watch children, young people, so many people kind of feeling a bit not, not comfortable about using their voice to ask a question or to express an opinion. And yet, when you can gently tease that out of people to take part to ask a question, you can feel their confidence growing. So um, that's what we need to be encouraging our schools to all do more because politics isn't just about parliament. It's not just about, you know, going into parliament and looking at the green benches and seeing how kind of people cast their votes and whatever. It's everything. It's about everybody's life chances. You know, it's about the kind of the streets you walk down and how safe they are and how clean they are and what opportunities everybody has for, you know, a meaningful life after they leave school. And the wider people think about politics, the, the, the better and healthier it is. Well, Alma Constance, what do you think about what Karen Buck told us? Well, she told us that MPs are legislators and their role is to pass laws. Only the government can usually put forward the laws and the MPs from the opposition have to hold them into account. MPs can sometimes put forward an idea for a new law and Karen achieved this in 2020 to help tenants improve their housing conditions and give them legal rights to be able to achieve this. Karen also thinks that it is very important for children to learn how to speak in public and to be more confident. She visits schools to speak to children and encourages them to speak up more. As a child, she loved reading and enjoyed listening to pop music. She also liked being outdoors. Karen says that she thinks that more can be done to ensure that children's voices are heard and is sympathetic to the idea of a lowered voting age to 16. But this would require greater engagement to make sure they're able to vote. And she did sound a note of caution about the new rules about voter ID, as there are fewer documents for younger people that have photographic identification. In our podcast, we've been exploring how laws work and affect young people. All of these things help children understand their rights and responsibilities so that they can make informed decisions, not only about their lives, but also about voting for MPs who make the laws and understand how the legal justice system works. It's also important that children know they should be kept safe and that adults must care for them. Remember, if you have any worries, talk to an adult you trust and tell them how you feel. This includes your teachers at school who are there to look after you too, so tell them that you need to talk to them. You can find more information on Kids Law Info website. Keep your questions coming in. Please subscribe, rate and share the podcast with your friends. See you soon in the next episode. Bye. Bye.